Will you please turn in your Bibles to Romans 3, Romans chapter 3. We have Bibles for anybody who needs one. So these brothers have some. They're going to make their way to the back. And if you need a Bible, just get their attention. And those Bibles are marked at Romans chapter 3. So you can turn right to the passage we'll be considering. Before we get into our message, I just wanted to make note of a couple of special guests that are here. Uh, the Hamiltons are out there somewhere. Zach and Lena, where are you guys? Where are Zach and Lena? I think. There they are. Zach and Lena Hamilton are right over here. I knew they were coming because Zach let me know a couple of days ago, and then I saw Noble doing the missions coin offering, their son, earlier. So we're delighted to have Zach and Lena here. I just wanted to point them out. They're right over there during our refreshment time after worship. Make sure you get by and see them. Most of you know who they are, but uh, they were beloved members of our church for many years, served faithfully here, have relocated back to uh, Ohio. Uh, They came to us from Ohio. Now they're back in Ohio. From dust they have come to dust they have returned. (laughs) But we love them anyway. And we also have some folks here from as far away as India. And uh, we have two brothers and our sister back here, just to the very back. And they put their hand up there. But uh, they're related to Pastor Nathan Ida. He's pastoring a church in Ann Arbor. And uh, their uncle, uh, Nathan's uncle and father and mother are here. And so we're delighted to have you folks uh, with us. Make sure you get by and welcome them as well. One of the most formidable challenges for a teacher is to motivate her students so that they're willing to learn the subject at hand. If they're unable to do that, the student may still endure the class, but they won't benefit as they should. The more personally relevant the student believes the material to be, the more inclined they'll be to apply themselves to studying it. Now, this is a particular challenge when the class is not something that you picked, but rather it was picked for you by someone else. For example, most college programs have classes that they require that are not directly tied to your major. When I was pursuing a computer science degree in college, I was not especially motivated for the three semesters of foreign language they required. So what does Spanish or French or Swahili have to do with computer programming? I solved that dilemma by getting the foreign language department to let me take New Testament Greek at seminary and count that toward the fulfillment of the requirement. And since I wanted to do that, because I planned to attend seminary after college, I was motivated in a way that I otherwise would not have been. Now, everyone who bothers to attend a class is, in fact, motivated in some way. Otherwise, they wouldn't show up at all. But, of course, not all motivations are equal. So if the only reason you attend a class is because it's required in order to graduate, then you'll endure it, but probably not put in the hard work that's necessary to master the material. And all of us who sit and listen to someone else talk, whether it's in school or in a training class at work or to a sermon at church, we all ask ourselves how this really matters. And if we don't see the relevance, then we may tough it out, but not because we want to. And I fear that this goes on all the time, not just in our church, but in churches all over. People go because their friends are there. Perhaps because it's good for their kids, because I've always gone to church on Sundays, because my spouse will make life difficult for me if I don't. Thankfully, unlike those categories, there are people who attend and listen because they see the benefit, 
But if we're honest, many do not. And if I ask, in which category are you, you may well answer, well, that depends on what you're talking about on a particular Sunday. If it's something that applies to me, then I obviously see the benefit. But I would ask you this question, is there any portion of Scripture that's not important for each of us? The Bible says this, all Scripture is useful. God wrote this curriculum for us. And he instructs us to go to school on it every day, including and especially every Sunday, to learn and to apply his truth. But his instruction is not like that foreign language class where the relevance is questionable. Rather, God has written on what matters most and what applies directly to every one of us. Now, you see, I can say that because the central message of God's textbook, so to speak, is called the gospel. And the gospel is important for every person, not only in this room, but in the entire world. Because the gospel deals with our most important and urgent need, namely to have a relationship with your father. Now think of it this way. Many of us are aware of the profound effects that loss of a father can have on a child. Those who do not have their fathers, either due to death or due to abandonment, face much more difficulty in life than those who do. Just a few statistics on that. Children in father-absent homes are five times more likely to be poor. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services states fatherless children are at a dramatically greater risk of drug and alcohol abuse. Three out of four teenage suicides occur in households where a parent has been absent. Fatherless children are twice as likely to drop out of school. Children from fatherless households are more likely to commit criminal acts than their peers who lived with two parents. Teenage girls reared in homes without fathers are significantly more likely to engage in premarital sex than those reared in homes with both a mother and a father. Now, thankfully, God's grace intervenes for those who love him, even after the loss of a father to death or divorce or abandonment. And so, dear friends, those of you who are enduring any of those situations, cling to those promises and that truth of God's redemption in your circumstances. But think about this. If separation from human fathers has those kinds of profound effects, imagine the effect of separation from your heavenly father. All of the destructive behavior that I listed earlier is our attempt to replace what's missing when there's no father around. And those who grow up knowing their fathers sometimes spend, those who grow up who've never known their fathers, excuse me, sometimes spend their entire lives trying to find him and connect with him. The Bible says there is a universal fatherlessness that all of us, all of us come into the world separated from God the Father. And hear this, friends, that separation is not because he abandoned us but because we abandoned him. The Bible calls that sin. And although it takes many forms, its root is our vain attempt to look for what only our Heavenly Father can provide, looking for those in God replacements that do not satisfy. We've abandoned God. We're not seeking God. But there's good news that applies to every person. God seeks us. Though he did not leave us, he initiates reconciliation with us. 
Now, if you'll look at the outline that's inserted in your program, at the very top, we give a definition of this good news of the gospel. The gospel is the glorious message that God's grace has overcome our sin through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And just like being estranged from your father has real-world negative effects, so also being reconciled with your heavenly father has real-world positive effects. So although this morning we're going to look at some old words and passages from God's textbook, the Bible, Please understand, friends, this lesson applies to you because it applies to all of us. Let's ask God to help us then. Father, thank you for allowing us to assemble in your presence and to open your book, your revelation to us, telling us about yourself, telling us about ourselves, and how you have made a way, the only way, for us to be reconciled to you. Thank you for the good news of the gospel and allowing us to explore it this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus, who is central to that gospel. Amen. Now, the Bible speaks of God, and it speaks of his absolute holiness. The Bible says things like, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Even when the best of men in the Old Testament and the New Testament are exposed directly to the holiness of God, they simply shrivel. John fell as though dead. And the Bible also speaks not only about God and His holiness and how sinful people cannot stand in His presence, but it also speaks of us and it speaks of the universal sinfulness of human beings. I've asked you to turn to Romans 3. Take a look at this famous passage in verse 23. Romans 3.23, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, as you put these two things together, the question is this. How can sinful men and women be reconciled with a holy heavenly father? How can people like you and me live in relationship with God? How can the relationship that Adam and Eve enjoyed with God in the garden be restored to us for all eternity? Now, author Jerry Bridges, in his book, The Gospel for Real Life, does a very good job of helping answer that question. That's it's a question that goes back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis. When the little boy Isaac was going up to the mountain with his father to offer sacrifice, and he said, we have the fire and the wood, Dad, but where's the lamb? And Abraham wisely answered, God will provide a lamb. And Abraham understood that he needed to look for God to provide for a way in which sinful men could be reconciled to a holy God. But all of his life, he looked for that one That would be the lamb that takes away the sin of the world, but he never found it. Neither did David or Isaiah or any of the other characters in the Old Testament, though they all looked for it. And then one day, there was a rugged old prophet named John the Baptist. And he was out preaching, and he identified Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, behold the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one. And he points to Christ and he says, this is the one who prophets and priests and kings have looked for and have been waiting for. Jesus Christ comes into the world. And his coming is the cornerstone of Christianity. In Christ, God has taken human flesh and he's opened the way in which man can be reconciled to God. 
And he's done this through his death and his life and his resurrection. And the passage to which I've asked you to turn in Romans 3 has some key words that the Bible uses to describe this awesome reality of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And these form the basis of our relationship with God. Again, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. As God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. There are three key words in that passage. The two of them make the third one possible. Now, I'll rather quickly explain the first two and then we'll focus on the third. But we need to understand these in order to know how we can have a relationship with God the Father. Now, the first of these words is redemption. This word means that Jesus assumes the debt of our sin. He takes the total bill that's on our account and he pays it. Now let me ask you, what do we owe God? We owe God total obedience. And Jesus has lived a life of total obedience on our behalf. He lived the life that we were supposed to live. And when we're unable to make our payments so that we incur debt, Mounting that unpayable debt, Jesus takes the bill and he pays it for us. Now, the second word is actually in verse 25, sacrifice of atonement. Jesus' death on the cross relates not only to what he does in redeeming sinners, but also relates to something he does in relation to God. You see, sin has not only placed us in debt to God, and so we need to be redeemed, but it's also provoked God's anger toward us. Now, let me just stop there when I say sin has provoked God's anger. Now, friends, in our modern culture, we talk about God being angry with people. That offends our modern sensibilities, doesn't it? Now, we've got the idea that God needs us, and that God's just happy to have us around. And anything God can get from us, he's, ha- he's glad for. But friends, you need to understand, and the only way for you to understand is to read the Bible about who the true and living God is, that he is an absolutely holy God. And he will not because he cannot tolerate sin. And so the Bible does indeed teach that God's anger is provoked toward us. Now, let's illustrate it this way. Consider a dating couple, Neil and Sally. Neil gets drunk, and driving the car home, he causes an accident in which Sally is permanently injured. She's never going to walk again. Now imagine the legal case that might follow from that, brought by Sally against Neil. She's rightly angry at his irresponsible behavior, and the key issue in that court case is this. What will satisfy Sally? And the problem with our reconciliation with God is not only that we have debts to God that only Christ can pay... It's also that God is opposed to us unless his anger is taken away. This holy God has a settled opposition to all sin. He's absolutely determined to destroy it. And as long as sin is found in us, we find that God is opposed to us, that his judgment hangs over us. So the great question then is, what will it take to satisfy God? And the Bible gives the wonderful answer in verse 25. 
God presented Jesus Christ as the sacrifice of atonement. So when Jesus died, he not only paid the debt to redeem us, he offered the sacrifice that would satisfy God toward us. He, Jesus, satisfies the wrath of God. He satisfies the justice of God. Now, here's the central message of the gospel. God becomes man in Jesus Christ. God bears the wrath of God for us. And God pays the price that God demands. Let me say it again. God becomes man in Jesus Christ. God bears the wrath of God for us. And God pays the price that God demands. And all of this happened on the cross. And this morning we want to see how all of this applies to us individually. How does all of this that happened at the cross relate to me? How does this achievement of the death of Jesus actually affect my life? How can it benefit me right here in November of 2015? In order to answer that word, we're going to look at a third great Bible word, which is at the heart of the gospel. Let's read it together again, beginning in verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are, and here's the word, justified. Freely by his grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, as God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And with this third word, justified, the triangle of relationships between God and man and Christ is complete. Christ redeems sinners. He satisfies the Father. And the result is that freely and lovingly and willingly and righteously, God justifies the sinner who has faith in the blood of Christ on the basis of the redemption and sacrifice that's been offered by Jesus. So if all of this redeeming and sacrificing work done by Jesus Christ was for the purpose that we could be justified, it's going to be pretty important then that we understand what justification is, don't you think? I'm indebted to Pastor Colin Smith for his helpful explanation of this. There are many who believe that to be justified means to be made righteous. That is, that justified means, they think, to take a bad person and make them good. That he changes what you are. So they say it's like a sick person who receives an injection and the medicine injected into them begins to flow into their bloodstream and into their body to make chemical changes that will move them in the direction of health. And so it is, they say, a change in our nature. It's a work by which God makes the sick person well, by which he makes the unrighteous to become righteous. And if we ask how it is that God makes someone become righteous, the answer is that God forgives your past sins and he gives you righteousness. It's like a spotless robe. But hear this. It's your job to preserve that spotless robe and keep it clean. And how do you keep it clean? By living according to the rules of God. And what if you fail to live according to those rules? Well, then there's confession and penance whether the Roman Catholic variety or that done by many Protestants in the so-called altar call. So the Christian life, according to this approach, is for you to preserve and grow in the righteousness that Christ has given you so you can reach the end of life as a truly righteous or justified person. 
So the great question at the end of life is this. Have you preserved the righteousness that was given to you? Does anyone here think you could answer yes to that question? If our salvation depends on us preserving righteousness, then the best of us could only be agnostic about our salvation. We might say we hope that in the mercy of God we'll enter heaven, but none of us could ever be sure that we preserve that righteousness. If I thought about the best day that I lived this week, the fact is I could have used it better. Not to mention my worst days. If justification is the way that God makes me righteous, I look in my life and I see that, yes, in some ways, I've made a beginning of fulfilling the law of God, but I'm nowhere close to completing the law of God. So I find myself in doubt, a very reasonable doubt, I might add. That's why Martin Luther was such a tormented soul nearly 500 years ago now. He had been taught in the religious system in which he was reared that he must preserve his own righteousness by a series of works. But he had no peace within himself because he knew that even when his actions were right, there was still the issue of his thoughts and his words. Not to mention the actions, thoughts and words that he failed to do or think or say, which is also sin according to the Bible. Yikes, what do we do? So he beat himself up. Literally. To try to subdue his sin nature. Yet, yet, of course, that didn't help. And so a mentor suggested he begin studying the Bible. What a concept. And he began looking at the New Testament in its original language. And he started with the book of Romans. And as he did, he found that, much to his surprise and his delight, the word justification in the New Testament does not mean to be made righteous but rather it means to be declared righteous. Now, what difference does that make? Made righteous versus declared righteous. Well, consider this illustration. Picture a full house at Comerica Park. The Tigers are on the field, the visiting team's up to bat. The pitcher's on the mound. The umpire's positioned behind the plate to call balls and strikes. The umpire's job is to call them as they are, and if he doesn't, then he'll have 40,000 umpires who paid to get in, as Ernie Harwell used to say, who'll be very angry with him. Now, suppose the pitcher is having real trouble. In fact, he's thrown 10 balls in a row, and the umpire's not too happy about it, so the umpire calls timeout. He strolls up to the mound, he tells the pitcher he needs some help, and then he'll show him how to improve. In fact, he says, let's start now. And he begins showing him what he's doing wrong and how to do it better. Now, we all know that's not the umpire's job to improve the pitcher's game. There's someone whose job it is to do that, the pitching coach, but it's not the umpire. The umpire calls what he sees, ball or strike. And to have the umpire making the pitcher better is to hopelessly confuse two very different categories. Justification has nothing to do with making us righteous. It has everything to do with the umpire declaring what is righteous and what is not. It's the role of the Holy Spirit in what's called sanctification. We're going to see sanctification in just a few weeks as part of the gospel. But it's the role of the Holy Spirit in sanctification to help us improve our game, to help us live a Christian life. 
And in justification, friends, God acts not as the coach, but as the umpire. He observes what we're throwing, as it were, how we're living. And he makes one of two calls, righteous or unrighteous, strike or ball. Now, if justification is God observing my life and declaring whether I'm in the strike zone or not, what hope is there that I'm ever going to be justified? If God analyzes our lives in strict justice, every word and thought and deed, what hope is there that he'll declare us right down the middle? Is that going to happen to anybody here? I already know the answer to that. And you do too. Even steroids aren't going to help you with that. So how can you ever be justified? Look again at verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus as God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. In other words, it's saying that the way God justifies a person, the way that God declares them to be right before him is not on the basis of their own performance. Because the truth is we're all throwing a lot of balls, as it were. But rather, the passage says he does it freely. And he does it freely on the basis of redemption and on the basis of the sacrifice that's offered by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And this justification that's freely given on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross involves two things. And you need to get these two things. It involves, first of all, our sin being debited to Christ. Our sin being debited to Christ. Now, many of you know that many years ago, two of my nephews, Matt and Justin, lived with us during their junior and senior high school years. For the first couple of years, they attended the local junior high in our town, Flat Rock. But after that, we enrolled them in a Christian school. And as far as private schools go, it was moderately priced, but nevertheless, tuition for the two of them was thousands of dollars each year. Now, like any bill, there were three ways to settle that school bill. One was the school could drop all charges. That would be terrific. Second is we can pay the bill as we intended to do. Or thirdly, it can be charged to somebody else's account. And one year, that's exactly what happened. Early in one of those years, I went to the school to offer our monthly sacrifice. And I was told, you don't owe anything. And I said, what do you mean? Did Kim come in and pay our bill early this month? They said, no, your bill's been paid by someone, not only for this month, but for the entire year. Now, that bill was debited to someone else's account, that someone unknown to us to this very day. It was debited to their account and placed in their name. It was our bill, but it was counted as if it was someone else's, so they that actually wrote the check and paid it. It was a very wonderful thing to hear the receptionist say, there's no charge. And truly, in fact, there was no charge, but only because it was paid by another. It was not that the school had dropped the charges. It was not that we had paid the bill, but the specific charges that belonged to us were assumed by someone else. And that's how it is with justification. 
God declares that there is no charge that's held against the believer, not because he dropped the charges or not because the believer has perfectly fulfilled the Christian life, but rather because he charges our sin to Christ. Christ picks up the tab. And that's why there cannot be justification without redemption. There has to be someone who picks up the bill and pays the charges if God's going to say there's no charge that's laid against your account. But that's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. Now, there's a second dimension to this marvelous truth of the Bible, justification as well. God not only takes our sin and debits our sin to Christ, but he takes Christ's righteousness and credits it to us. Now, this is similar to frequent flyer bonus miles for an airline. You build these things up by flying a lot or buying lots of stuff on an airline credit card. I have one of these credit cards that earns points, but it's taken years to make enough purchases to accumulate sufficient points for a single airline ticket. But some people fly a lot and spend a lot, and as a result, are able to build up a bank of miles to their account. You can sometimes transfer points or miles to the account of others. In fact, I know people who have done that. Perhaps you have. Now, when that happens, credit is being given to one who did nothing to earn it. When those miles are transferred from the account of one person to another person who hasn't earned it, it's being credited to them. And that's exactly what God does when he credits Christ's righteousness Christ's righteousness to us who in no way earned that righteousness. In justification, God charges our sin to Christ, but he credits the sinner with the very righteousness of Jesus. And this is the way it's always been when God saves someone. In fact, speaking of Abraham, going all the way back to the first part of your Bible, Abraham in the book of Genesis If you look at chapter 4 in Romans, chapter 4, and verse 3, notice what it says. Abraham believed God. And notice, it was credited to him as righteousness. That was true of Abraham back then. It's true of us now. It was true of Abraham on the basis of the sacrifice of Christ that would come later. It is true for us now on the basis of the sacrifice of Christ, which has already been done. And this crediting of Christ's righteousness to us and this debiting of our sin to Christ that God does is as real as the nails that pierced the hands of Jesus and as real as the spear that was thrust into his side. He really bore our sins and he really does credit us with his righteousness. That's what justification is. In the Bible. And so we have for you that outline inserted in your program. And last week we looked at the first two aspects of the gospel. Effectual calling and regeneration. And we saw that God's grace and effectual calling delivers us from the persuasion of sin. And gives us a new perspective. And God's grace and regeneration delivers us from the power of sin. And gives us a new heart. But justification delivers us. From the penalty of sin. Delivers us from the penalty of sin. And gives us a new record. Delivers us from the penalty of sin. And now I have a brand new record before God. 
Thanks be to God in Christ. Now, how do you get this? The passage in Romans 3 says, by faith. In fact, if you look at verse 22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Verse 25 again, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Verse 26, he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And then verse 28, we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So how am I justified? How am I declared to be righteous by God? It's not by maintaining spotless purity and living the Christian life, which I can never do and you can never do, but it's by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is faith? Well, consider a young couple, Tom and Mary. They start out dating and they slowly get to know each other. And unlike perhaps previous experiences, the more they get to know, the more they like, the more they're drawn to each other. Next thing you know, they're down the aisle and before God and human witnesses and they're commuting, committing each other to each other for life. Together they stand in the church before the pastor who turns to Tom and he asks two solemn questions. Tom, will you have Mary to be your lawful wedded wife? Will you love her, honor her and keep her in sickness and in health? And Tom says that he will. And then the pastor turns to Mary and she responds, I will as well. Now, friends, faith is similar to that. It begins by coming to know Jesus, who he is, where he's come from and what he's about. It begins with discovering that he is God, the son, that he came from heaven and that he has come to redeem sinners. It starts with knowing those things about Jesus. But faith is more than knowledge. Did you know that the devil himself knows that Jesus is God, the son? The Bible says he trembles at that knowledge. But it's quite possible to learn about Jesus and be no better off than if you had never heard of him. Faith involves a two-way commitment in which Christ receives me and I receive him. Martin Luther described it like um, as being like a marriage. He said, faith unites the soul with Christ as a bride is united with her bridegroom. And it's the Holy Spirit who conducts this marriage. Indeed, he's the one who draws us to Christ in the first place. So think of it this way. It's as if 2,000 years ago, the Spirit of God said to Christ, will you take a young man in southeast Michigan named Ken? He'll be born somewhere in the second half of the 20th century. And will you be his Savior and his Lord? Will you bear his debts? Will you offer your life as a sacrifice for his sins on the cross? And in effect, Jesus said, I will. And then on a day in 1981, the Holy Spirit spoke through the Bible to a young man in southeast Michigan named Ken, who was reading the scriptures because he wanted a relationship with the God about whom he had learned his whole life. In effect, I can do take you, Jesus, as my Savior and as Lord of my life. When the vows have been said by both parties in a marriage ceremony, the two become one legal entity. 
And without losing their individual identities, God sees them as one. The documents are signed, the bride has a new name, and all that belongs to the one becomes the property of the other. So think of what being joined to you meant for Jesus. The Holy God, God the Son, had to take your sin as if it were his own. But now think of what being joined to Jesus means for you. You possess the righteousness of Christ as if it were your very own. Thanks be to God. And that's why the Bible says this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, The redemption that's potential for everyone becomes actual for you. The sacrifice that's sufficient for everyone becomes efficient for you. All that the Lord Jesus accomplished on the cross becomes active in your experience. And that in that moment, God declares you justified. Now, what would happen at a wedding service if one partner made his or her vow And the other remained silent and gave no response. Well, one thing's for sure. There would be no marriage, right? Christ has declared his readiness and desire. He's ready to take your sins. He offers you his righteousness. But the transaction is not made until by faith you take him as your savior. And as in the marriage service, the response, I will, could not be simpler. Just two words, I will. But the commitment is life-changing in its significance. And that's what awaits you. Now we're going to, in just a moment, we're going to bow. And you're going to have opportunity to receive what Jesus freely offers So that God declares you righteous before him, even though you're not righteous and even though I'm not righteous. Because it's based on the righteousness of Jesus. And some of you came into this room having never done that. You've heard the good news of the gospel. The good news is Jesus died to pay your sin debt. Perhaps you didn't know that he lived the life that you should have lived. And he will apply his righteousness to you when he comes. But now you know both of those. You know the sacrifice, you know the redemption, and you know the justification that comes out of both of those. But you must receive that free gift. You receive it by faith. We're going to bow in a moment. And you can say in your words to God that you realize you're a sinner. You recognize, yes, that Jesus died for you on the cross, but that he lived the life that you deserve, should have lived. Repent. Lord, I give you my life. I'm going to follow you. You receive Jesus Christ into your life and you become unified with him. And what is his becomes yours incredibly according to the Bible. And what was yours in your sin is placed upon him. Thanks be to God. So your take home truth at the bottom of your outline. Those who believe in Jesus, that is, believe is faith. Those who have faith in Jesus receive full forgiveness and pardon. Full forgiveness and pardon. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for this sacred hour. Thank you for meeting with us. 
Thank you for allowing us to meet together before you. And thank you especially for your word and the gospel which is central to that word and for the Savior who is central to that message. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who is our righteousness. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit is moving on the hearts of some now. And you are drawing them out of their sin and toward the Savior of their sin. That they are realizing, perhaps for the first time, that they have no hope in themselves. That if they are to stand before God in their own righteousness, there is no way that we will enter into your presence for eternity. We cannot do it, but Jesus did. We thank you. And so, Lord, I pray that some are receiving that free offer to be justified, not because of who they are, but because of who Jesus is and what he did. And Lord, I pray as well for those of us who have received that gift. Help us, Lord, to be people who recognize the enormity, the enormity, the infinite enormity of what God the Son has done for us. Help us to be people who live lives as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto you, because this is our reasonable act of worship. Father, we thank you. and We love you because you have first loved us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.